1: My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Mike Johnson. MJ, what's going on, man?
0: Not a whole heck of a lot as we are all stuck in neutral right now and hoping that the world gets a little healthier and then at some point uh, gets back to normal and the hockey we can evaluate will be current games, not games from the past, but all good. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's hanging in there. So we're uh, as good as could be hoped.
1: Yeah, it's good to hear your voice. Hopefully, the listeners hearing your voice listening to this podcast, it'll make them feel like hockey's back. Like they just turn on the TV and where uh, you hear Mike Johnson talking about hockey, so it feels everything's everything's normal again.
0: That would be nice. I can't <laughs> wait for uh, to that to come, uh, whether it's in the summer, the fall, or whenever.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wish. I mean, listen, like anyone else, I wish right now you and I were just geeking out over playoff matchups and. As, mm-hmm. a- asking each other questions like, should Tampa Bay be going top line versus top line with the Bruins or should they be using Anthony Sorelli instead? Like, you know, those are my favorite shows to geek out on the playoff stuff with you, but there's obviously. Did you just
0: important. give Tampa the first round win over Toronto? Just, oh. just curious for our oh. Toronto oh. listeners and just want to make sure that we, we
1: we got that straight. Unquestionably. I thought, I thought the, you know, there's obviously so many uh, horrible things going on, but from an NHL perspective, I, I, I thought that, um, the Lightning were kind of the big losers here because I thought this year's team was actually better than, than the one we saw last year. It's crazy, that is, that is to say, about a 62-win team. Yeah. And, and they were kind of firing all cylinders, especially after their deadline acquisitions, and I thought they really got all their ducks in a row. So for them to uh, potentially miss out on this opportunity to sort of uh, get over the hump and, and make people forget about what right. happened last season, um, that, that, that's a big shame for them, I think.
0: I say glass half full because now whenever they come back and playing, and I'm p- hopeful that they will, They're going to have Steve Stamkos available from the get-go, so uh, their captain will be part of the whole run, however long it lasts.
1: That is true. That's true. Okay, well, um, we are going to make do with with what we have, and what we have is uh, old classic playoff games, and so I thought that you and I would... uh would rewatch the Ducks and Oilers game five, 2017, as part of this uh, PDOcast quarantine rewatchable series I'm doing, and um, yeah, it's fine. I, I actually gave you some homework, uh, and I think uh, considering how little we have going on right now in the way of work, you, you probably appreciated that as much as I did, just having a game to watch and and, uh, and kind of sink your teeth into. So we're gonna go through the usual categories that I've been doing um, for, mm-hmm. for those of you that are tuning into this one and haven't heard. The archives for whatever reason we've got six uh games we've already done so go back listen to that please leave the podcast the rating interview and, and and most importantly stay safe stay indoors watch hockey with us and and that's kind of the point of this as a, a little bit of a uh, a reprieve and and um so with that said you and i are going to get into it and let's get into the legacy of this game um and and sort of why we picked it and when i Pitch this to you. I know you. You actually, I gave you a list of games, and and you said this one would be Mm -hmm. the most interesting. Kind of rewatching this and sort of thinking back to where we were at in twenty seventeen, these two teams, everything that's happened since. Like, what's what's sort of the lasting legacy of this game now that we're roughly three years out from it?
0: Well, you know, Edmonton, Anaheim. You're thinking, okay, so the legacy of this game, I think, was the the beginning. Even though they won the game, like it felt rewatching it, it was kind of the beginning of the end for Anaheim where, you know, this team was really, really good. And, um, you know, they had a great run for a lot of different ways. Um, And it was kind of like the legacy of the game you thought was going to be, you know, one team kind of just hanging on and one team ascending in Edmonton. And Edmonton would clearly pack Anaheim in the the near future and roll on to be a good team for years to come. That hasn't been the case. Um, So the legacy of this game was like that kind of gutsy Anaheim team just, you know, that was playoff-hardened. I mean, I know they didn't win, and I know they had some bitter, bitter disappointments in the in the playoffs, but they were really good for a really long time, and, and that triumvirate of Getzlaff and, and Perry and Ryan Kessler, and you could kind of tell Kessler wasn't quite as healthy as he wanted to be, but he was mm. still battling, and just kind of the last stand for that group that was so good. And the other legacy of this game is the transition you thought Anaheim was going to make from those older guys I just mentioned to this young core of defensemen. And there were six of them who played in this game that you're like, this group will be set for years and how that hasn't played out. That's going to be a real curious part about evaluating this game and what happens to the defensive core for Anaheim.
1: Yeah. The legacy for me is, 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 I think you were touching on it there. It's whenever someone points to a young team having a lot of success or whatever, and then sort of mapping out what the next, eight to 10 years of their franchise is going to look like, and just sort of taking for Mm -hmm. granted all the steps in in, in between. I'm always like, we need to sort of remember how the NHL works and how quickly things can change. This, this is less than three years ago. It's three years ago, um, mid mid May or so. Um, Mm -hmm. and just, if you watch this game, Obviously, you know McDavid and Dreisaitl are are still doing their thing, and a few of the players are are in different destinations. But the actual constructions of the two teams themselves has has changed so dramatically on both sides, where it was kind yeah. of just threw me for a loop watching this, being like, "Oh, I can't believe like how big of a role uh, Benoit Pouliot and Mark Letestu are playing for the Oilers, yeah, and and you know Cam Talbot standing on his head and he's got sixty saves in this game, and it's it, and it's." An entirely different world now for both the Oilers and the Ducks. So for me, it was just kind of watching this. It was, it was remembering um, just kind of the steps they go along and this sort of cyclical yeah. nature for NHL franchises.
0: It's a great reminder. Um, you know, I think as players we can relate to it. You talk to a lot of guys like, "Oh yeah, I made the the conference final. I made the final in my second year. I thought we were we were going to be there every year, and you never get there again." Like that's how the NHL works. There's this this straight line ascension growth of success that you think any team that has the talent of McDavid and Dreisaitl on it would be assumed to take we know and we should have known then although even you know losing the series whatever you, a lot of people thought okay, well this is just the beginning for everything it doesn't always work out that way and the Oilers are, are certainly proof of that so far
1: yeah so well, Tyler Sagan was recently on uh, Craig Custons' podcast and he was talking about how when he won the cup with the Bruins in 2011 he sort of just assumed that early yeah. in his career that that's kind of like going to be the new norm and you're just going to keep getting back there and keep tasting that success. And then now he hasn't really felt anything like that. He made it back to the cup final with the Bruins in 2013, but uh, for the past six or seven years for him, it's kind of yeah. been, you know, first, second round here and there uh, very minimal playoff moments. And it's, it's, it's a kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a humbling reminder of uh, how difficult the NHL can be, especially now that we're headed towards having 32 teams here in a couple of years.
0: I made the conference finals with the Leafs my second full year in 99. I never made it back that far again. 10 more years I played in the league so um, and I was we were very much a young team oh yeah like we lost to Buffalo who went, went on to lose to Dallas in the foot in the crease goal by Brett Hall and I think every one of the young guys in our team we had Steve Sullivan and Freddie Modine and um, you know some of the older guys in Joe and uh, we had Al McCauley you know all the young guys were all like That's, you know we were obviously devastated but no doubt we thought we'll be back next year we'll be back next year it'll happen again we're, we're, we're only going to get better and then by the time they got there next year, like half those guys were gone anyway. So it's it, you, you really do have to take advantage of every opportunity, and maybe that's one of the other legacies of this game is that Edmonton had it. Edmonton had this game and, and maybe this series right there for them to win, and they were not able to do it. And a missed opportunity for the Oilers for Connor McDavid for Dry settle um, will be one of the real takeaways as well.
1: And I think rewatching this game, I, I sort of had forgotten how many twists and turns. Similar, it was a real like encapsulation of this entire series. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's you know right out of the gate, I, I'd kind of forgotten just the Ducks sort of really took it to Edmonton and Cam Talbot stood in there he stops Orion gets left penalty shot they have a couple yeah. power plays I think the shot attempts were like 27 to 10 or something like that for Anaheim through, through one period and it's still scoreless heading into the second and then Edmonton quickly scores two three goals they go up and then obviously like any game there's kind of these twists and turns and the Ducks make a pushback in, in the third period but I was curious from your perspective um, you know when you were playing and you're on either side of this so let's say you're on the team that is dominating like the Ducks were in the first period and you feel like you're controlling territory really you're up big on the shot clock you really feel like you know you've got your foot on the gas pedal but at the same time you look at the scoreboard and it's still zero zero and you don't have anything to show for it are you feeling like um kind of quietly encouraged or optimistic that hey we're the better team here and if we keep doing what we're doing right now we're eventually gonna have something to show for it and we're gonna break through or are you thinking listen hockey games typically have these changes in flow the referees will probably even up the penalties and there's the other team's going to have some power plays. They're going to have their own chances. And all of a sudden, if they capitalize on theirs, we're going to kind of be kicking ourselves, looking at it, thinking, Oh man, what a missed opportunity for us. What, what sort of um, headspace are you in when you're in a game like this, where uh, one team is dominating so much, but nothing's really Mm -hmm. happening on the scoreboard?
0: Well, the eternal optimist of both teams, right? It comes to play. And I think, if you're, if you're Anaheim in this case and, and you're playing well, like you absolutely – and you 100% you, – you're like, you know what? Just keep going, boys. Like, do the same thing for the same way. We will get there eventually. Their goalie can't be this good. We trust our shooters. And, and you genuinely believe that. But somewhere in the recesses of your mind, you know at some point no one dominates the game for 60 minutes like like that. No one no – one, you know, there will always be ebbs and flows. And you can – Convince yourself and keep at the top of your psyche, you know, the positive thoughts of, you know, we're doing fine, keep doing the same thing until the other team scores. And then once the other team scores and now you're like, okay, we're losing in a game. We absolutely deserve to be winning. Then the negativity of like, boy, did we miss an opportunity? Um, you know, we, we, we should have been up. We of you know, those kind of um, less positive thoughts creep in. But as long as it's even, You'd have Anaheim saying, keep doing the same things, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. And you'd have Edmonton saying, listen, guys, we've played terribly, and we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. We just got to be a little bit better. Both teams, and I think athletes in general, always want to convince themselves of the best-case scenario. I mean, they're, they're, we're, we're, also, we're willing to be um, almost delusional in our beliefs that we can come back, or we can win this series, or we're the equal team, or... It's still a chance, and we haven't that bat. Like all these different things, you want to believe it to be true, so you almost will it into your head. But until the other team scores, and then once Edmonton scores, you, I imagine, if you could get honestly into the brains of the Anaheim players, that they'd, they'd be thinking, "Man, do we do we blow this? Do we mm-hmm. blow this by not scoring on our penalty shots and our two on ones and our power plays?" And Edmonton would be thinking, oh, "We are <laughs> in great shape right now because we don't have any business being up one nothing, two nothing, three nothing. But we'll take it." And we'll ride Cam it right on out of here And go home and win this series So it, it, yeah they, they, You believe it until it's What is the expression? Everyone's got a game plan Until you get punched in the face yes. You believe it until something bad happens And then I bet Anaheim would be kicking themselves And, and Edmonton would be full of confidence As, as they kind of took the lead in the second period
1: Well at one point when Edmonton is up 3-0 uh, Chris Cuthbert very, um, very prophetically Says well if this series has taught us anything The Ducks will be you know we'll have something to say about this and sure enough they do come back Mm -hmm. but i think this this game and this series really um uh are a tough one for for people who believe big time in uh, in momentum and games and, and playoffs because um mm-hmm. you know the, the edmonton goes into anaheim they win the first two games in the road then anaheim goes back to edmonton you would think you know in front of that raucous crowd that really hasn't experienced anything like this in the postseason for like a decade or whatever uh you think edmonton's got this under wraps and anaheim steals two games including a, a game four in overtime and then you head back into this game five in anaheim and it's got its own series of uh you, you know twists and turns and momentum and then funny enough, you'd think after this game, okay, well now nah, the series is over, Anaheim has, has got this under control, you know, emotionally how is Edmonton going to bounce back from this, and Edmonton just smokes them 7-1, and they're up like mm-hmm. 5 or 6 nothing in the first period, um, and then it goes to this game 7, and, and I think the dis- only disappointing thing because I do think this series is incredibly rewatchable, a lot of the games are super exciting, this game 5, which we're going to really deep dive, is filled with the drama, and, and I know it's going to be kind of pulling at the heartstrings strings for Oilers fans, but I do think there's a lot of learning lessons, and there's a reason why I wanted to sort of view it as this historical time capsule but the issue is that the game seven for this series was so um underwhelming and 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 boring i thought from an event's perspective it was kind of this low event 2-1 uh squeak through win for anaheim and, and they finally rid their demons and and got over the hump after losing uh, at home in Game 7 for four consecutive seasons heading into it. But um, mm-hmm. it, it, if this was like an actual Game 7, I think it would be considered one of the sort of most, um, you know, all-time Classic. rewatchable yeah. classics just because of how crazy it was.
0: Yeah, you're right. A bit of a letdown. But, I mean, um, that, that's, that's how it goes. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to... Eh, momentum, and I've always heard this conversation, like, I don't know game-to-game... How tangible momentum is i mean this series would probably would tell you that uh game to game momentum doesn't really mean much but within a game i think there's definitely something to it and this this game kind of had different swings in it but um yeah it it was curious and what made this kind of compelling to me as well as we touched on is just like one team hanging on for one last run one team coming up for one more run Mm. you know like this is this this is um, you know two teams knowing that they're going in different directions and just trying to you know Anaheim trying to stave off the time those those two those paths those arcs cross and and Edmonton trying to make them cross at this moment it's it was it's just it was an interesting time uh, because you thought the teams were heading you know one was Edmonton getting going to get much better and Anaheim they were kind of running out of running out of real estate.
1: Mm. All right, well let's uh. Let's get into what age the best then rewatching this. Um, you know, sure. it can be it can be as small as as an individual performance or it can be as big as mm-hmm. sort of a concept or whatever. What what what's kind of struck out to you um, watching this sort of what age the best?
0: Okay, uh, what age the best for me? Um, this game, this series, the idea that Edmonton probably better off when Dreisidel can play on his own line. And mm-hmm. I think this yep. what aged well is that now sometimes he played with McDavid in this game and in the series, but a lot of time he carried his own line. And I think there was a lot of question marks about him, and could he do it without Connor? Was he good enough to, to kind of do it on his own with wingers without being on McDavid's line? And I think what aged best because a lot of people thought in this short sample of this playoffs he was actually better than Connor McDavid in a lot of ways um, in these two rounds that Edmonton played, and that aged really nicely. The you know the thought that Leon Draisaitl as a centerman is good enough to make his line. Effective and dangerous without playing with Conor McDavid, I thought that was something that was not taken for granted. I mean, now it seems obvious, but I don't think it was as obvious back then. And that is something that um, you know Drysdale was showing in that game, in that series, that uh, he's more than more than okay on his own.
1: Well, that's a great point, and and this was the period of time as well where after this postseason, the Oilers needed to decide what they were going to do with Dreisaitl and how comfortable they were with him as as a building block because his -hmm. his entry-level contract was up, and, and they clearly felt very comfortable despite the fact that we hadn't really seen him for an extended period of time, especially during a regular season, uh, run his own line and do it successfully. A lot of his success yeah. at this point had been with McDavid. So it was it was certainly a leap of faith from them. And now, clearly, you look back, and with what we know, it's one of the bigger sort of non-entry-level deals, steals in the league at what they're paying him. But um, it, it was funny because in the first two games of the series... They were exclusively playing them together, and I think by the time they got back to Edmonton, they realized that you, for all of Randy Carlisle's flaws as a coach, he was doing a remarkable job of just getting Hampus Lindholm and Ryan Kessler out there every single time McDavid yeah. was on the ice, and then they were like, well, if these two guys are going to just neutralize our only scoring line, we're going to be in big trouble, and so by the time you get to this Game 5, you got three separate lines which which those have done very uh, sparingly because even now uh, with the success Dreisaitl had on his own line this year he was still playing with Ryan Nugent Hopkins um, at this yeah. point they're rolling those three guys on their own separate lines where you've got McDavid playing with Patty Maroon, Andre Cajula you've got Leandre Seidel playing with Milan Lucic and uh, a real throwback in Anton Slepeshev and then you've got yeah. Ryan, Ryan Nugent Hopkins playing with uh, with Benoit Pouliot and Jordan Eberle and so it was, it was really fascinating to see Todd McClellan and uh, in such a pivotal game, make that type of leap of faith and be rewarded so well. Because I thought you were right. There was, especially in in the first overtime, there was a couple chances Drysaitel had there where where um, they were creating yeah. a lot when McDavid wasn't on the ice, and, and so that really has aged very well.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing that that uh, this game reminded me of, and maybe it aged <laughs> the best like he is, is Ryan Getzlaf was a stud. I mean, he still is, but like that guy. Um, yeah, I played against Getz last. Uh, that's how long he's been in the league. <laughs> but like, so many things that he does, um, is just in this game, just a reminder of like, I, I think we should really respect how good, borderline great this guy has been. Everything from the production, we know that. Um, but like, when I'm watching him play in like two, two and a half minute shifts at the end of games and he doesn't look like he's tired, when I watch him go in a pile and throw guys around because he's got that weird, Crazy strength whenever he decides to flip it on. Like just when he is when he's at his best, he was as good as anybody in the league. Like Ryan Getzlaf at his best was amazing, and he was awesome in these playoffs, in this series, in this game. But that, just to me, just like another, you know, sometimes you think back. Yeah, Getz, he was really, really good. And then you watch it, like, no, he's better than just really good. Like he he showed watching this game, that was a, a, a strong reminder of just how dominant he could be physically. Like, I don't even know what his shift length were, but he must have had multiple shifts, whether it's on the power play or whatever. And he gets out there 90 seconds, and he's got to chase someone down on a back check. And he can. I'm like, where is this guy finding the oxygen to do this 90 seconds in? But this is something he did all the time. So, to me, Getzlaff was a, a standout. And he's, you know, just a reminder of, of how, how great he was.
1: Yeah, I had off Getzlaff on my what age, the best I'd kind of forgotten um, how dominant he could be. And this was a nice little reminder. He was the best player I, by far, I thought, in this game, in this series. By far. Um, yeah. His ability to control the game, you look at it now and, and uh, it's so easily visible when you watch Nathan McKinnon or even Connor McDavid in this game, like to see how why and how they're effective and how they can put their stamp on a game with their sort of speed or in McKinnon's pay, case, his kind of raw power and how they drive up mm-hmm. the ice with their skating. With Getzlaff, he's got this kind of like old man game and, and he's only 31 or whatever at this point of his career, but he's got this ability to sort of like a like a a pocket passing quarterback. He kind of just like sits back there and he, and and he dictates the game and he uses his frame and no one can get the puck from him and everyone Mm -hmm. else is moving a million miles per hour around him, but it doesn't matter because he is the puck and no one can get it from him. So everyone has to play at his pace. And he just sort of—it's um, this unique ability. Like Joe Thornton had it uh, during that Cup run, the the, the Sharks made right. in in 2016 or whatever. And you know Henrik Sedin had it towards the end of his career. But it's this ability to—you—you you stylistically don't match pretty much what anyone else on the ice is capable of doing. But he's the only mm-hmm. player that matters because he's the one that has the puck.
0: But I will say this about him, and I and I from firsthand from calling games, he is fast. Like, he doesn't Mm. look like it. He doesn't always play like it. You're right. He uses his strength and his reach, and he boxes guys out with his body. And, you know, he's. we know he's one of the best passers of our generation. But, you know what? You get into a foot race with him, his top speed was better than, I don't know, maybe anyone in that series except for Connor. Like, Mm. at full speed. He might take a couple seconds to get there, but going full bore, he might be faster than anybody else in that series. He's that good of a skater, but – it, it, and I like watching them. I like watching a guy who's like, I'm going to slow it down to my pace. I'm going to maneuver the players on my team and the other team with my eyes and my body and my stick position and my hands and everything I'm doing subtly that I'm not even thinking about, but I'm just still orchestrating everything that's happening on the ice. And I got it the whole time and you can't take it off me. And it's it's just, it's uh it's a unique style that not many players could play and he did it very well.
1: Well, you know, what's funny. Um, he's one of those guys similar to like, I think of a uh, Jason Spezza and his prime or maybe even Nicholas Backstrom where he's such an elite mm-hmm. passer and he's so dominant as a playmaker. And I think he prefers it that way that you kind of forget that he's also got this amazing shot. And then whenever he does flash it occasionally, you're like, Oh, maybe like, I wish he kind of would shoot it more. And, and sure. Yeah, enough, I would ha-
0: tell him that thing all the time. We, yeah? I, I covered Anaheim series like three years in a row prior to this one. Um, and we would joke about it, and you know, because I played. Whatever we'd chat, and 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 I, I, you know, we talk about some two on one. I'm like, Getsy. Yeah, like at some point, are you gonna shoot? He's like, "Oh, I know. Oh, <laughs> he knows it." I'm like, "You have a rocket. Like, why don't you?" And he's like, "Oh, my." He's like, "Coaches have been telling me that since I'm 15. Like, shoot the puck more. Shoot the puck more." And you're right. And he knows it. The coaches know. Everyone knows it that he should do it. He has, but he has the Joe Thornton mentality. Joe can shoot as well. So can Nicky Backstrom. But they would rather pass it to a guy in the back door than shoot it past the goaltender. I honestly believe that. That's just how they are wired. And um, there there's, there is moments in the series where you're like, man, he can really shoot it. Boy, he should do that more. Because <laughs> there's some goals in his career, or some years in his career where he'd score 15, 18 goals. Like, there's no way right. that guy could score anywhere less than 25 to 30 goals because he has the puck all the time, plays a ton, and has an absolute snipe of a shot. So... Um, Yeah, not lost on you, but not lost on him or the coaching staff (laughs) who encouraged him to try to shoot all the time. You just couldn't get him to commit to it full time
1: well he took it to heart in this game and i think that's maybe it was a game plan thing maybe that's what the oilers are giving him and, and I, I love that where this idea that a great mm-hmm. player sort of changes what he would gets steps out of his comfort zone a bit because we know how he'd prefer to play based on how his career has gone but he in this game he takes 13 shots he's like i felt like even probably maybe even had more maybe that's an undercount like he was hammering from the point whether it was on the power player when it was late in game out of desperation like he was putting every single thing on net yeah and it got me thinking because when you think about this year's generation of players whether it's just because he played in anaheim or, or you know maybe because he never really had the full raw counting crazy stats or didn't score a ton of goals so he didn't really get a lot of the accolades but he's kind of quietly cruising towards a thousand regular season points now but if you look at and the reason why i said playoff gets laugh he's got 120 playoff points and 125 playoff games for his career and and since he entered the league in 05 that's fifth and and it's amongst the usual suspects of crosby malkin yeah. and patrick Kane. and it's like you wouldn't typically if you asked someone oh from this generation or, or the generation that's kind of phasing out now who were like one of the, who's one of the five to ten most dominant players of that era i wonder how many names you'd have to list off before your casual fan got to getzlaff but he he's built quite a quite a resume for himself throughout his career
0: Yeah, that's all functions He never well i guess you won a cup on his career. Right. he never yep. won the cup as like the leading guy as, as the, the prime time gets that but if you were to get around international players the best players, the guys who plays on the team canada in the olympics the world championships or the world cups they would tell you that gets is is right there i mean when he when he gets those best on best tournaments he is he, he shines
1: um We quickly mentioned Troy Seidel. I did have him um, as my what age is the best, too. And and the reason, obviously, his production is one thing, but what really stuck out to me, I I think his skating has certainly improved the past couple of years. Um, But you saw that sort of vintage, uh, what has become vintage now, it's kind of his trademark play Um, on the first Oilers goal in this game. He's entering the offensive zone, and he does Mm -hmm. this like – backhand sauce to a defenseman where it goes cross ice, full speed off his backhand, tape to tape like over a couple of Ducks defender sticks and eventually makes its way back to when he scores but I, it was like, I don't know if at this time it was a trademark move but now that he's one of the league's trademark players, it's like he's taking it from Crosby as as I think the right up there as the best, most dominant sort of backhand player in his game and, and watching that I was like, oh my god it, it feels like I'm watching a 2020 version of, uh, of Dryside right. on this one.
0: Yeah, you're right. And uh, his backhand, he, I'm a bit of a like a stick junkie, curve junkie, right? So I like it, I, every time I go to the rinks and I'm covering games, like I'll go up to the room and I'll kind of poke around the stick rack and just look at the curves and who's got what. And, and a lot's been made of it, and I've talked about it before. But Leon's paddle, like his blade, is noticeably longer than anyone else's. Like it's it's exceptionally long. Um, I'm not even sure if there's a legality on how long you can make your stick blade, but if there is, he's right up against it, and he doesn't have a very big curve. Um, both things probably lend themselves to being so strong on his backhand side, whether it's you know shots, face-offs, pass receptions, and certainly passing. Uh, so yeah, he, he he's very good at it, and yeah yeah that's a very kind of common play that he would make today. You'd expect that to see that a dozen times a game. You didn't see it quite as often back then as he was still kind of growing into his into his his, his dominant self that he is now, but. Um, that big, that huge paddle is, is <laughs> something to behold. Um, and the fact that he can handle the puck as well, because at some point I think almost it becomes too big and cumbersome to manage it so, so well, but he, he obviously has it figured out. And, um, that, that has, that, that has aged well, that is that, that backhand pass, that kind of steam pass, and then having him just kind of cruise through and have it bounce back to him. And one time at home, like that is, we've seen an awful lot of that, that kind of weak side one timer drop to a knee get lots of uh, velocity on his shot. That is something that's, that that he, he he's continued to do uh, a lot in his career.
1: My final what age the best? Uh, it's kind of a, a bittersweet one since uh, it's the only time we've seen it. But Connor McDavid in the playoffs. Um, mm-hmm. What age the best from that for me was um, you know we've seen with Nathan McKinnon last year, for example, the abs run uh, sort of what it does for like it's you're the only game on on a given night high stakes are high national audience everyone's watching it really does a lot for both the player and the league but from this specific case for me it was sort of this chess match and it's what I love about the playoffs where it kind of you go game to game depending on where you're playing some the home team has the advantage and obviously certain coaches care about it more than others but this was like uh, the wet dream for, for people who mm-hmm. um, just love that chess match component of like top defenders going against top offensive yeah. players. Because especially in the games in Anaheim, you're sort of seeing how Anaheim wants to get Kessler out there against McDavid so that Getzlaff can play against the second, third, fourth lines and crush offensively the Oilers want to get him away from them, and even if you stretch it for this full postseason you know in round one the Oilers had played the Sharks and I think like Mark Edward Vlasic had been basically tied to McDavid's hip for the entirety of that series and so just sort of watching the machinations of one team doing something and the other team trying to adjust and and them trying to um, get a leg up on each other it's tougher to see in hockey than it is in other sports like in baseball you try to get like you know pitcher versus hitter matchups or in basketball it's like a size thing or whatever so in hockey it's much tougher to see especially since it's so fast and shifts are happening so dynamically on the fly but this series it was so easy to pinpoint what both teams were trying to do strategically
0: yeah yeah there, there was no secrets out there right um but i, I mean that kind of we'll get into it a bit later but you know the, the idea that of, of watching and of watching kind of McDavid deal with, and you know, he's dealt with it his whole life, right? Like since he was 12, I'm sure they had like guys matching against him or trying to be physical against him or talk to him or get him off his game or get chippy or whatever. But I don't know if there's anyone in our recent memory that did all those things, like with the same kind of gusto that Ryan Kessler did, like there might be better defensive mm-hmm. players. Yep. There might be more physical guys, but guys who just, who thrived on trying to sink their teeth into an opponent, into a matchup? Like, necessarily, I, I sort of like I don't even care about the game. Like, I only want to bother him, and he's just so greasy. Every, like, I watch the game, and I watch it closely, and I watch it through my players' former players' lens, and I see all like the little cross checks, the little pokes, and <laughs> little slashes, little chit chats in the ears, and it's just like to watch McDavid have to deal with that. Now, again, I'm sure it's something he's not uh, it's not formed to him, but I don't know if anyone did it quite as um enthusiastically as ryan kessler and, and to watch that matchup evolve throughout the series and even in this game it was it was it was fun to do
1: well and i'd sort of forgotten because i i thought kessler and he was kind of laboring physically already at this point and you could see that he yeah. didn't have his full fastball but you know he played all 82 games this regular season it was his age 33 season he finished second in in Selkie voting behind Bergeron, and it was it was pretty legit. Like a lot of his underlying numbers were very good. He sort of allowed mm-hmm. Anaheim to play the way they wanted to with their with their top six, and and that kind of combination of him, Cogliano, and Silverberg were very good as their de facto mm-hmm. checking line. And maybe if anything, this is sort of um, you know what age the worst in the sense that randy carlisle relying on him so heavily at this point probably uh sped up the process of how quickly he did deteriorate physically because he's 33 at this point he's playing over 21 minutes a night through the regular season he's and they're tough minutes on the penalty kill he's chasing around other teams yeah. best players and in this game you're right there's you could basically put a a 10 minute highlight reel from this series of kessler just <laughs> after the whistle <laughs> chopping at yeah. his at, at his at his shins and just doing all this yeah, stuff yeah. where it's not it's it's he, he became a master at um, that sort of pest thing of you do just enough where you're not going to get called for a 2 minute yeah, minor for get it. you no. if But if, if you're doing it for a full game, the player you're doing it to, if it, it's an accumulation process. It's like it snowballs. You feel it. But, um, That's man, by a thousand
0: cuts, man. That's 5,000 <laughs> cuts. And it's hard not to, like, say, Rest, come on. Like, I know maybe, like, that flash in the back of my ankles when he's going for a change is not worth a penalty. But when it's the twenty-second time, like at some point, there has to be a cumulative factor here. And, and and Kessler just loved it. He loved it. He loved. He'd talk on the bench. He'd be leaning across. Like he just loved it. I mean, even to the point where it's great, Ryan Kessler. If you if you go to an old game tape, if you can watch warm up, and I'd be standing between the benches. And one of the things he would like to do is he would come down and stand right, basically beside me, one elbow on the bench, drinking water. I don't know about six seven minutes in a warm up. And he would just eyeball the other team. And he'd sit there for like two minutes, which is a long time ago. to sit still. And I think some of it was kind of visualizing the goaltender. Like he'd watch the goal, the other goalie get shots, But then he would like lock in on McDavid or dry settle and almost like will them to like, look at me. Look at me the way I'm looking at you because I'm <laughs> coming for you. And, you know, you'd have some guys come by and like they'd turn like, what the hell are you looking at? You're like whatever you're in for a long night, fufu. Other guys would like would steer clear of that eye contact and not try to engage with them. But like it, it, right from the second he stepped on the ice for warm up, he was dialed in into jerk mode. And Mm -hmm. I said that was like as a compliment, like you know he was there just to do his job. And I I used to love, I'd be like, get a nice get an ISO camera on him, check out him eyeballing Patrick Kane check out him looking at tags watch him getting after mcdavid without even moving without even saying anything like he's willing them drawing them into his mental game which goes along with his physical game he, he was a fascinating guy to cover and i don't know uh maybe that's what age worst was the fact that you know this is maybe the last kind of time you could do it remotely yep. close to that level because his body just it just gave out
1: hmm yep yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a great point. And he came up with those Canucks teams with uh, with Bx and Burroughs and they prided yeah. themselves on that uh, oh. on that jerk puck for sure. Um, all right, well let's let's get into what age the worst then, and uh, I'm gonna kick us off with one. So the ducks okay. def- the ducks defense, in theory, it aged the best because it's a list of really good players. You're the problem is very, the words right out of my
0: mouth. The problem is the words right out of my mouth. Very yeah.
1: few of them are still on the ducks, um, and uh, so in this game. And it's interesting because uh, I'm glad we picked this one because there was stretches in this postseason where whether it was because of injuries or because of matchups, uh, Randy Carlyle was using Corbinian Holzer. He was using Kevin Bieksa. But in this game, they just fully unleashed. The, yeah. They, the I mean, 26-year-old Cam Fowler is like the old guard, uh, 25-year-old Sammy Vatden, 25-year-old Josh Manson, 23-year-old Hampus Lindholm, 23-year-old Brandon Montour, and 22-year-old Shay Theodore. And, man, um that is probably as good of a combination oh. of six defensemen as you're gonna get from a skill set perspective in the cap era like I, I can't honestly cannot imagine accumulating six better defensemen could um you, in this era could you
0: could you imagine if they if they were together now like where they've become oh I guess, I guess that's what age, It's the best the worst I'm with you hundred percent because it's age the worst because they're not together yeah and they've all gone other places and they're all broken apart and Vatman was, you know, off in Jersey and then dealt and you got Montour what in Buffalo and Theodore and Vegas and you, you know, Lynn Holm was there and Manson's there and Like, I understand. I understand the salary cap or the expansion draft played a significant role. Kevin Bieksa and that no-move clause they mm-hmm. offered him was just a death blow to that team because they have to give up some of their players but um, it, it was just a crazy reminder of how good this young group was and yeah, that, that, their defensive core management, shall we call it? That has to be the thing that has aged the absolute worst out of this game.
1: Yeah, and I—I I mean, their hands were tied in a sense because of that BXNO move clause. But I do honestly think they—they just—they probably just didn't think Jay Theodore was going to be this good. Like they drafted him, they had him internally. I'm sure they appreciated him. I just think realistically, like they made a choice. They could have, in theory, kept him and exposed. Uh, someone else or made some sort of a sweeter offer for Vegas to take. But it's funny because at this time you can still tell that Randy Carlyle doesn't really trust Shea Theodore. he's not playing very much as the game goes on. He doesn't do anything particularly yeah. great. But I remember from this post season, you would sort of see that, that neutral zone work, which is his bread and butter. Now just how he'd be able to dictate the flow of a game and control it with his skating and his puck movement and his positioning and everything. Yeah. And, and you, yeah, go you for it. You
0: know what I drew out of this game though? Like, the, and you're right. And, and I guess part of that was, like, one of the things that stood out was, like, how good Theodore has become versus mm-hmm. how unsure he looked of himself. He looked yep. like a guy who didn't have confidence in playing in the NHL the way he was. You know, he just, like, like maybe in a glimpse you see a quick little brief, oh, there's the guy who's a powerful skater, the transition passer, can jump up in the rush. But then you saw him kind of kicking around the puck a little bit and backing up. We, like, you could just see he was not sure of himself. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of that's you, some of that's coaching, some of that's maybe the, the playoff and the pressure. But, um like like I thought, watching this series, Sammy Vaanden was excellent.:
1: Oh, yeah, he was so good.
0: Excellent, and like, I don't think he's been quite as good since he went to New Jersey, uh, maybe it's a role and, and but like I thought that like, he looked so good, and Brandon Montour, if you were to ask watching Game Five, like mm. he looks like he's going to be better than Shay Theodore. Yeah. he's more assertive, yep. he gets involved more, he's got more confidence, he's got the puck, he made more plays. He was he was cleaner in his in his decision making with the pocket, and that, that hasn't proven to be the case. Um, and again, some of that is situation Vegas versus Buffalo and everything else, but mm-hmm. um, they, just the entire you could you could do some sort of flow chart from that six guys and where they've gone and how their game has evolved because it's not it's not played out as you probably would have thought watching that game.
1: No, it certainly has. And I think this was a it was a weird time in Theodore's career where because of the cap and because of how deep they were, remember like the Ducks kept sending him to San Diego and and I don't know if he was actually making those trips or if it was just a paper transaction, but it was like it was he was just going back and forth and it was a really yeah. um weird time and and it's funny looking back at it now because I did see enough from his neutral zone work where at the time of the expansion draft um Theodore and Nate Schmidt were the two guys that really stuck out to me as like modern day defensemen that could plausibly be available that could really like, Mm -hmm. if you can get those guys, get those guys. And they obviously got both those guys and it's worked out well for them. But I don't think even in my wildest dreams, I expected Theodore to blossom into like a, he's probably one of the 20 best defensemen in the league at this point, based on his effects. And, and so, you know um, that's one thing, but the Montour thing that you pointed out is very interesting to me because in this game, he's remarkable like he's flying around the ice he's like Mm -hmm. he's just doing stuff with the puck where he just he as soon as he gets better than i remember he flings it to the guy and, and and it's weird because i'm not sure how much of it is him how much of it is the situation he's in but watching him these days in buffalo it's like the physical tools are still there the skating is there um the the puck handling is there but it, he's not as quick with his decisions and when he makes decisions it's like i don't know if it's a hockey iq thing or what but he's always in the wrong place I don't, I don't know what's happening he certainly has not developed the way i thought he would and and i don't know what to attribute that to but yeah if you told me at this time that montour wasn't going to become a, super, a star i i wouldn't have believed you because he was that dominant at this point in time yeah
0: yeah i mean it's 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 strange because you know you, you start you know he's a couple of years in his career he's in his early 20s it's not like he's 18 and you know, you think you'd be a little bit more sure of of the direction a player might go, and, um, you know, maybe just you just got lost in the shuffle and lost some of that confidence and in some of the, and some of the systems. Maybe playing a bit better team. Obviously, everyone looks a bit looks better when they play on mm. stronger teams, and, and maybe he's one of the guys that needs the kind of structure. You know, I see Marco Scandella resigning with St. Louis. Like he didn't look quite as good when he played in Buffalo as he did when <laughs> he played in St. Louis, and I yep. mean, there's something to that for for guys. Uh, so maybe he maybe to need a little little support in that regard. Now, what is the worst for me besides the Anaheim defensive core? Mm. The idea that Jordan Eberly can't play anymore.
1: Oh man. Because if you yep.
0: remember coming out of this playoffs, he struggled and I don't know if it was a health thing, confidence thing, or whatever. But like a lot of talks like this guy he, he he'll get you twenty five in the regular season, but he won't do anything when it matters most. And you're like, um, do we watch the world juniors? Like, do we watch the world's like just because yep. it's not, he hasn't done it in the NHL. Because the team hasn't been there, doesn't mean he can't do it. And yeah, he might have gone through a couple bad series and didn't score goals or whatever. But and and admittedly, like he was quiet in this game. I'm not suggesting he wasn't. Like if I were to watch this game and like, you know, he doesn't look like a guy who's 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 going to be able to 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 maybe help a team to the degree that his salary might warrant or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that that idea aged poorly. It, it really did. And and he's moved on and he's been a big time scorer still and and in many ways does a lot of things that Edmonton needs wingers to do, um, that they need wingers to score goals. Like, he's not a perfect player, and he's not, you know, a guy who's going to lead a team as the number one guy. But as a complementary piece, I think the idea coming out of this was like, he's, he's not that, and he's not worth $5 bucks, million, $6 bucks, million, whatever he was making. But um, I think that idea, that thought aged poorly, because he is worth it. He does score goals, and I think he showed even with the Islanders, with a run to the playoffs. Play- I think he led the honors in scoring when they made the playoffs uh, yeah. last year. Yep. So uh, the idea he can't score is uh, factually incorrect.
1: Yeah, the takes here were bad. And I think it was just a genuine misunderstanding of how shooting percentage works. Like he was, he was basically a 13% shooter for the entirety of his career. He was always above league average this year. He scores 20 goals on 208 shots, which is 9.6%. He doesn't score in his 13 Mm -hmm. playoff games on 22 shots. And and there's this idea that, uh, you know, he just doesn't play the right way. He doesn't get to the dirty areas. He can't score in the playoffs. They dump him in basically a salary dump for Ryan Strome. Then they wind up trading Strome for Spooner, Spooner for Gagne. It's a whole mess. And yeah. The Islanders get him, and it's hilarious because he instantly, that season, jumps back to 13.7%, and he's been at like 12% ever since. He was great last Mm pro season. He single-handedly outscored Pittsburgh in that round one sweep. Um, And yeah, so this was a a great reminder of not to buy huge into short-term shooting percentage fluctuations because I'm going to take the eight-year sample or whatever he had at this point in the NHL as opposed to a a 13-game stretch where he just couldn't score.
0: Yeah, but I was around Edmonton. I called the first game against San Jose, and like it was, they were an angry mob. Like they were angry, and he and, he's, and to at Jordan's credit, he's he's actually been quite frank about how he was hurt and how it bothered him to kind of take the kind of criticism he was taking, and and probably bled into his second round performance uh, because the Heat took in the first round. So, um, which I give him credit for for being honest to say, yeah, like it hurts when he gets talked about that way. But uh, that was that was a that was a poor take. And the other one that is maybe not as strong, but um, we've seen a lot of this. And I remember, again, being around the Oilers, and Drake Kajula had come out of North Dakota, if I'm not mistaken. And, and he was quite highly thought of. And, and like a guy who, I think he scored big goals in college, and you know he, he might be a Jordan Everly kind of player. He might be a guy who can get you 25 to 30 goals playing on one of those top six roles, and maybe what A's the worst. And, and you know, he's an NHL player, and I, and I get why coaches like him. He's quite reliable, he's energetic, he's spirited. Um, but the idea that he's a top six guy in a good team, probably which they were trying to make him in Edmonton probably did not age the best.
1: Yep. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and that era lasted pretty short um, and it didn't work out the way I think they thought. Um, yeah. The way Connor McDavid is officiated aged the worst for me because uh. Uh, and you can stretch this out to, I'd say most stars in the league and especially when the playoffs come where the rules seem to change, but He drew 52 penalties this regular season. Since then, in the three years, he had 36, 35, and he drew 24 penalties this year, which was tied for, like, 20th most in the league or something with Tyson. Ridiculous.
0: It's ridiculous.
1: I mean, listen, like, you can certainly make an argument that um, you don't want to turn the game into a— the product that it was after it came back from the lockout in 2005 where it's just penalty box after penalty box just marched there so it's slowing the game down the game is at its best when it's free-flowing five-on-five trading chances but i mean at the end of the day like you need to protect your star players you also need to just call the call the game as it's intended to be called and teams take such liberties with mcdavid and they sort of just have to Uh because they realize the refs will not call everything and they're better off taking their chances because otherwise he's just going to blow by them. So there's so much hooking and obstruction. Yeah. It's, it's obscene. And um early in his career, uh, he was drawing more penalties and it feels like now the referees have almost become like kind of desensitized by it. And it just becomes such they're a norm to how much it happened. Yeah. They're just used to seeing guys on him. So they just think it's the new normal and he just, the opponents get away with it. And so just rewatching this, there were a couple instances where it happened, but it's like, Pretty much every time he gets a step on someone, there's some form of obstruction happening, and you could call five or six penalties a game if you wanted to if you were actually calling it by the letter of the law. Yeah, you're, you're right, and
0: that's been a point of contention for me. I've talked about this a lot, and to me, see, I, I don't use the phrasing protect your star players. Now, there's probably something to that. There's a reason why the NFL goes out of their way to make sure nobody touches a quarterback, because they are more important, but, but like, there's something to the meritocracy of hockey mentality. Right. Like, you don't need to protect the, heart, the star players you just need to call it the same way you just yes. need to you know, apply the rules and whether it's the Chris Pronger or the Shaquille O'Neal defense like I'll foul them every time and they won't call me every time because they won't and so I'll just you know I'll take my two penalties but it'll help me the rest of the game and it's a net positive for me like I don't think we have to go down that road and, and you say well we don't want to see a parade of the box you're right but guess what if you do that all the time because you can't skate and like if you can't skate as fast as them that's too bad for you. Like you should not, that should not be his problem that he gets dragged down. Cause no one gets kicked as fast as he can. That should just be his advantage. And um, you know what? Those teams that they take eight penalties a game, cause they can't defend someone. Then, then they won't be playing for very long. If they don't figure it out, if they don't change the way they do it. So I, like my whole thing is like, call it the way it's written. Call it the same the whole time, whether it's overtime or the first period, or whether it's the playoffs or the regular season, call it the same all the same throughout the game and the smart teams and the smart players will adjust and the teams that can't do it as well because they're physically not capable or mentally not willing to, then they'll lose more games and they'll mm-hmm. change players and they'll adjust too. Like, I, I don't think it's as confusing and yeah, there might be some more penalties. But I don't think it's like this massive undertaking to say, and it's not to free up Conor McDavid. It's just to call it the same. Yes. Just You know what? If you're going to commit an infraction, we're going to call it simple as that and now mcdavid would probably benefit more than that because he's better than everyone else but you're right like i can't even imagine how frustrating would be for him you know because at some point like you know bitching and moaning at the refs won't work it'll probably work against you but every time he skates off the ice you're like okay that's a hook that's a hold that's an interference every single time um it would it would be very frustrating for him i would imagine
1: yeah. Well, it's not, it's not a uh, protection is the wrong word. You're right. I think it's more so like, you know, you know, the, the mentality of a competitive pro athlete, it's like you're going to try to get every advantage. And so if the referees tell you that of a course. certain thing is okay, you're going to keep testing the boundaries of what's okay. Right. So you're going to keep, it's going to keep escalating. We're going to keep doing more and more until you're, you get slapped on the wrist and you eventually get told no you can't do that and then you go back to square one and you keep trying to work your way up to to kind of figure out what those what the line is you can't cross right and so if the referees are stretching that line further and further it does become dangerous both the product of the game and also player health so um i think the other thing in terms of officiating the call at the end of regulation i can't well those fans are probably like i can't believe you're taking 50 minutes to get to this point because it's like the the main point of the game, but the reason why it cool. aged the worst for me is um, beyond the mm-hmm. fact that it decided the outcome of the game. Was I still three years later don't really know what goalie interference is. Like, uh, right? It, it just so that seems was like, my
0: most that was my most unanswerable question. Right. <laughs> it still what, is. Yeah. What's goalie interference? Yeah.
1: I mean, because there's no there's no real consistency or clarity, right? And, and and that's the thing that's infuriating. I think if you just lay down the guideline of you can't do a certain thing and every single time you call it that way, regardless of the result, I think people will be okay with it. But in this case, you get this instance where you can make the argument that Darnell Nurse pushes Ryan Kessler into the goalie, but yes. Kessler makes no attempt to leave the crease and Talbot cannot <laughs> play his position. And I was under the impression yeah. that those are two main tenants of what constitutes goalie interference. So I think they, they just chose to focus on, okay, Darnell nurse initiated the contact. And so we're going to go with that. And they just, it was right. too big of a play to change it. So I think they just went with a call on the ice. Cause it was this complete scrum and mayhem. But I just think that's the sort of the a flawed way to view it. And I just wish at some point in time, we did have a definitive rule because I watch a ton of hockey. And at any point in time, if there's a review for goalie interference, I have no idea what the outcome is going to be. You may as well flip a coin.
0: <laughs> Listen, I'll do broadcasts, and they'll come up. I'm like, they're like, so what do you think, Mike? And I'm like, I think that's <laughs> goal interference, but I don't know. Like, yeah. you know, that's how I would call it. And, but I, you know, again, because what makes this one so difficult to, 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 to figure out is that I think Ryan Kessler most definitely was pushed into the goaltender and that's on the Oilers. So you, like, if I'm standing in front of the net and you cross me hard and I fall on your goalie, like that's not goalie goal interference on me. That's, you for being silly but there's no doubt you're also correct and in typical Kessler fashion he takes a long time to kind of extricate himself from the goalie pad he's hooked in his knee and and that that probably should have resulted in the goal interference but then we're trying to split hairs of like how quickly should I expect you to get out of there and that's a hard thing to, re- to, to figure out I mean as, as quickly as possible I guess but um yeah I mean it, the Oilers fans have an absolute case to be you know livid about how this played out and the Ducks fans have a pretty good case to say, you know, I mean, he got shoved in there and, and he was trying to get himself out of there. They're all tangled up and it's, you know, don't hit him in there if you don't want him in there. So like it, I get both parts, but yeah, maybe that's, you say, what age the worst, the most unanswerable question is, you know, <laughs> would that have been if that's called today, that happened today, would that be goal interference? Like, has anything changed? Does the fans, does the clarity change? I, feel, I still think we don't know about what would be there. And, and I guess that's what can make it frustrating, but I also can understand the difficulty i i understand and have sympathy for the challenge for the referees to, to determine that because there's so many moving parts that happen all at once
1: there are it's tough it's certainly tough um my final what age the worst how much time i spent arguing about chris russell at this point in time i wasted so much time and effort online writing articles doing podcasts talking about Chris Russell and now in 2020, it's like, I just look back at it and I just can't, I mean, it's, it's the game has changed so much. And I think that those kind of wars or online wars arguments are over, but it's like, man, it seems really outdated how much time we were spending arguing about that because this was sort of, maybe it was like a year before this where he was still in Calgary and he was playing like 24 minutes a night and people were wondering how good he was and what his effects were. But, um, it was just a, it was just a completely different time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's, you know, the idea of the, like Chris Russell's a tough guy. Yes. Like he's like a physically yep. a tough player. And, and I think he's a very much a, a, um, a, a liked and respected teammate. So that, mm-hmm. that, that adds into teams that are trying to evaluate him It's not just about, you know, well, we, boy, do we give up a lot of shots or boy, do We play our own end an awful lot. We get out score, we get out chance, but like, you know, he blocks shots and he plays through broken fingers and guys love him and he sticks up for his teammates. And, you know, maybe in the last minute when it doesn't matter if you have the puck, you're just asking for someone to put their face in front of it. Like he's the guy you want. And I get that, but over the court, you know, I don't know. It's, you know, I, I guess I respect for how hard he plays. It's just, you know, it's, it's the game. It's because some of the things that the game does right now are, are tough for him. They were tough back then. And just uh, Edmonton fans, the Calgary fans were, were they're so passionately defending him, even though the numbers would stack up and say, you know, you you know, on a, on a, Aggregate basis, like you're not doing as well with him on the ice as you might be without
1: him not
0: playing so much.
1: The thing that bugged me is just like every online argument, it was everyone was overcompensating to try to make their points. So everyone was like stretching, both sides were stretching to such extremes. Yeah. It's like, oh, he shouldn't be in the league. Or it's like, oh, we have these internal metrics that show that he's actually really good, which every team would require and would say that. And it was just like, can we fall somewhere in the middle and say he's like a useful third pairing defenseman that can kill penalties and be out late in the game when you need to sacrifice your body? Like, that. There's a certain role yeah. for that on a team. Can we not
0: disagree? Like that makes sense. It doesn't have to be either end of the extreme. No yes. one's saying he can't play in the NHL. No one's, but no one's saying he's a first line. Let's just let's just let's use some common sense to dictate a conversation. I mean, that's too hard. Common sense is no fun. <laughs> Nobody want to hear any of that.
1: Well, uh, on a related note, I think the reason why uh, this series holds such a special place in my heart too was it was like it was such a it was a perfect meeting of Randy Carlyle's Ducks which like bugged me so much with how they play dump and chase so much. And and it I think rewatching this, I was actually kind of blown away, pleasantly surprised by the roster talent they had at this time. We talked about the defense. Kessler still has 75, 80% of his fastball gets laps playing really high level, but you've got like yeah. Raquel and Silverberg were flying around in this game. It's yeah. Yeah, I, I lament the fact that the ducks at this time weren't, this modern team that was playing this up-tempo track meet style similar to how like the Leafs play let's say now because they had the defensemen to like certainly play better defensively but just move the puck up the ice quickly and they had the forwards to play a fast game despite you know get slap wanting to slow it down and they just chose not to play that way and maybe it was all these like playoff defeats in the years past where they fall short in game seven so it makes you kind of react and be overreactionary, and you fire bruce boudreaux you hire randy carlisle you, you you decide you need to play slower you need to play more physical to get over the hump and they do get over the hump right. in the series but it's it's like man this team should have and could have been really special to watch and i remember at the time certainly not thinking that they were appointment viewing television by any means
0: no you're right if you're running a team and like you've had a ton of success, right? Whatever it was seven hundred point seasons in a row, whatever, like you know, lots and lots. Like it, it's it would be hard to get right away from that from that style, from that philosophy. Even though you're coming up short, I mean, those the Chicago in games, whatever, the four game sevens at home in a row, like, but you're right there, right? Like, it's not like you're miles away. So I, it would be it would be challenging. And if you're the GM and you're like, hey, we're going to get rid of Bruce Boudreaux, who we know is a, a very good regular season coach you know you probably go back for a low risk cuz we have the group for really close like i I get, I get how you can fall into this sort of groupthink mindset of just do the same thing dumb it down down it down cuz we're good enough to basically get there like this i don't know what will happen if we go the other way i kind of know what happens and we know management coaches like it's all about control it's all about controlling variables controlling the outcomes and they would feel they had more control going this way than they mm. would if they would have turned it over to you know a, a more contemporary style that might be get played now
1: yeah no i get it. i get why they did it i'm just yeah. i'm still disappointed by it um,
0: <laughs> okay so listen a couple of fun, yeah you're right listen it'd be way more fun if everyone just played it open and free and then we'd all be very <laughs> happy but you talk about um rewatchable moments csn mm. turning points yes and you know it'd be easy to say well the review at the end or or you know missing the penalty shot but i go to the most obscure thing. So it's three one and it's late in the third period. Mm-hmm. And obviously Anaheim's pushing score effects are, you know, been hanging on, but Cam Talbot's playing awesome. And Adam Larson goes in the corner, tries to get a puck and uh loses his stick. If you watch the second goal, so then instead so he has a decision to make. His stick is sliding up towards the point. He can either stop at the hash marks and go back to the front of that without a stick, engage in a fight, maybe grab a forward battle, block shots or he can try to chase a stick and get back into the play. He goes to chase his stick, pulls himself up to basically the top of the circles. There's an underneath pass, and I'm watching the first time. I'm like, why is that pass lane so open? It's because Adam Larson is above the top of the circles on the boards trying to grab his stick, mm-hmm. and it gets out to Cam Fowler, and there's bodies in front, and the defenseman who'd be there in front either blocking a wrister, which is what Cam Fowler was scored with, or clearing out or attempting to clear out the forward that screen cam Talbot. Yep. He's not there. So the TSN turning point to me Ooh. was Adam Larson dropping his stick and electing to chase it, to get it back prior to cam Fowler's second goal with set of the tire and the winner, everything else. But it's just such a, such a, it's a thing that happens all the time. And I get in these conversations all the time. What do you do if you break your stick or you drop, did like you chase it in the defensive zone? Do you go back and get it? Or do you retreat for position and try to sort it out later? You went to get it. And it did not turn out well for him or the Oilers.
1: I like it. That's a very, very niche and very uh, deep, deep dive uh, turning point. I like it. Mm. I think. I mean, listen, that entire sequence. So it's three nothing Oilers with three thirty four left. The Ducks pull their goalie for an ozone draw. There's so many. Uh, this might seem well, kind of like Drysital. Yeah, yep. he
0: drops it. He, he blocks it with his back twice yeah. for the first goal. Yes. Adam Larson chases his stick after dropping it. Very strange. Second goal. We can mm-hmm. talk about the goalie interference, but it's Mark to I think he was the puck on his stick about 15 feet inside his blue line. He doesn't get it out, which allows it to get dumped back down the front of the net and the mayhem, and then the Raquel tying goal. Like three different incidents where either the Oilers didn't do something right, or had a bad break, or didn't quite get it over the blue line that would have ended this game. And three times in a row in the last four minutes. It got in the back of their net. It's wild how many things worked out for Anaheim or had to be messed up by Edmonton to allow them to come back in this game. Because the game should have been over even with Anaheim pressing and everything else, because the Oilers had it. They just they just made some bad decisions in the in, in the wrong spots.
1: Well, not only that, but when it's three two, Gibson stops Latestu like in tight, and then Benoit Pouliot hits the post. Yeah,
0: Pouliot post, yes.
1: And Chris Cuthbert goes mark that one down, and uh, and then they score shortly after. And you're right, like the on the first goal, uh, like gets last, just teeing off as hard as he possibly can, and it's yeah. like just using Drysdale's body as a as target practice, basically. On the second one, and what you mentioned with Adam Larson not being there to clear him out, Cam Talbot is literally getting triple screened. Like they've got this mm-hmm. triangle going: Kessler, Perry, and Raquel. It's like, oh, my God, being an NHL goalie looks like the absolute worst. Like, you just cannot see a single thing, and the puck just finds its way through. And on the third one, mm-hmm. you talk about these, like, kind of make-or-break game game of inches types of plays. Cam Fowler yeah. saves the game twice because on the first, first, like, breakout pass when it's 3-2, McDavid's hounding him on the forecheck, and he kind of spins around him and gets the puck out of his own zone as they're trying to break out with empty net. And then at the blue line, when you're talking about Latestu clearing it, he makes a beautiful save and then just basically spins around and throws the puck into traffic on it and it gets to Raquel and they score. But it's these plays where like high leverage, uh, he makes one misstep and the puck is in the empty net and it's 4 2 and it's over and uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. And, and so I thought Cam Fowler's poison that it was was pretty remarkable. Like he, it really stuck out to me the final three minutes, just like how in control of it what he was as sort of this uh, last line of defense.
0: Yeah, but you also have to respect at that point your default, like your safety mechanisms are gone. So he can, he can hang on the blue line with great poise, but it's also very risky because you wouldn't do that if it was a tie game. Because if it doesn't work out, the game's over. They're going to get an empty netter. But because it doesn't matter at that point, you put yourself in a spot to to play with poise and make strong plays of the blue line. But because you, you've you've absolved yourself from screwing up. And, and and it worked out a couple times in a row because he could have very easily stood on the blue line there with Latestu at the end of the game and pop over a stick. And he's not going to beat McDavid to the puck on the race. But because he was willing to stand there, he happened to knock it down. Uh, but it, it's amazing because you just, you know, when at that point, you don't care if you get scored against. So you give yourself chances to look really good. And he did.
1: Yep. It's very true. Um, biggest heat check performance? Two things.
0: You know, big, well, before, biggest okay, heat yeah. check performance. Well, I thought the biggest that guy, ran, like random guys that popped into the series, mm. two guys from one on each team, Jim, stood out. Yep. And kind of surprising. So they're, they're basically the same player, Mark Latesto and Antoine Vermette.
1: Yes. And,
0: and and how much their coaches relied on these guys. And for good reason, they are both very good on their face-offs. But I remember Latesto was like the power, they had a five on three out there uh, where McDavid scored the goal in the second period. And I'm like, okay, yeah, there's, there's Nuge, there's Dry Settle, there's McDavid. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe it was Clefbaum playing the point. And like, oh, there's Ever oh, that's not Everly, that's that's Latestu. <laughs> yep. was their power play right shot trigger guy. He was. And I know we had a couple of years where he had, I don't know, maybe I had eight or ten power play goals, whatever it was, but um just the, just the prominence that he played with the Oilers was noteworthy because I kind of forgot that, you know, he was you know, that important of a player would play in those kind of situations. He's out of the end of games, out of the penalty kills, five on three, four. He's out there with those guys. Um, they obviously saw something really neat in him. And Antoine Vermette, same kind of thing. Like this guy uh, was, you know, he's playing on center, you know, down depth centerman, but he played an awful lot. And you could see Randy Carlisle, like, would just love the fact that you could always put him out there. And every single faceoff, he does the power pull. So he's a lefty. He turns his bottom hand over. And he just reached back to his backhand side. And he's just so good at it. And every single faceoff, he ends up on his knees because he dives his whole body into trying to pull it back. It's just amazing to watch from a guy who was no good at face off myself. Just like, God, how committed he was. Every single face. in a neutral zone with 10 seconds left in the period. A total nothing faceoff, And he is diving into it with everything he has. Just those two guys stood out just because they both found a niche. And every team has one, guys like this um currently always but just the coach they clearly the coaches love these guys the amount that they play and the role that they played and and they just were very good at a couple different things but it was things that the coaches clearly valued and so they found themselves a nice prominent role on, on the club
1: well i love it like you watch um like a high like i've been watching the michael jordan documentary on on netflix and um like they're showing the highlights of when he scores 63 points against Boston and the commentators are like, every time he scores a bucket, they're counting. They're like, that's 50 points. Like that's 60. And in this broadcast, the broadcast is treating Antoine remet face-off wins like that. Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. that's 22 face-off wins. Oh my God. <laughs> and like, he was just out there on every draw and he was just seeing like so smooth. So that's a good one. Letestu yeah. was, um, he was this weird, like special teams ace at this point of his career. Like there was one play on the penalty kill where he does this like lob pass over the defense, to Cassian and he almost scores on that he's just out there for like mm-hmm. 22 minutes in this game playing a huge role scored a couple power play goals in game one of this series so yeah that was a good call um my biggest that guy was Benoit Pouliot because in preparation for this I stumbled upon his cap friendly page and it's the most random piece of literature online like it's so he gets drafted <laughs> fourth overall in 2005 yeah he gets traded after 65 games for Guillaume at and it was kind of this like, oh, both guys were high picks. Let's try a change of scenery. And then after his ELC expires, he signs five straight one-year deals. So he was just like perpetually in a contract year, He but for five mm-hmm. different teams. He was just bouncing around. He had a couple moments, and then he finally signs this long-term deal with Edmonton five years, and he's playing a pretty big role in this team, but shortly after, there he gets bought out, and he's out of the league now, but... It was just like I remember him being a hot sort of. He was kind of like this lightning rod player because he would take yeah, sloppy penalties. For sure. He, yeah. you could see the physical tools where you just wanted more from him and and be like, oh my god, I can see why he went top five in the draft. He's so gifted physically, but the sort of end result wouldn't justify it, and so people were very frustrated with him. So he was my uh, my biggest that guy because it kind of just reminded me of the Benoit Puglia era. Um, biggest heat check performance? Do you have anyone that really stuck out? to You, I guess it was. I guess for you, it's also like Latestu, right? Well,
0: let, let, yeah, I mean, let, let's to. But, I mean, I don't know if he even applies. But, like, Cam Talbot, kind of. Like, I mean, mm. he was really good in this game and in this year. And, like, you know, he was – maybe not, he's not unsung performer in that sense. He's a heat check guy. But just, like, um, just Cam Talbot just being so good was, was impressive to me. I thought that uh, that was uh, the guy that, that just – like – you forget how, you know, maybe good he was supposed to be. <laughs> maybe that's one of the things that it does age – that well from this game is that the idea that Cam Talbot's a franchise goalie for the next decade but I don't know he's not unsung because he's the goalie but uh, you know Cam Talbot just was the guy that just was like whoa he was so so good
1: well he stopped 60 of 64 in this game and honestly the three he gave up in regulation like he did not see any of those pucks like they they were just bouncing Mm -hmm. off bodies and so he was on another level for me the biggest heat check and this might sound weird because of the career he had but Corey Perry in this game so I think people forget at the start of the series, they'd acquired Patrick Eves at the deadline. And he was on a complete bender. He scored 30 goals this year. He was awesome when he came to Anaheim. And so he was playing on the top line for the first three games of the series with Ricard Raquel and Ryan Getzlaff. And then he gets injured between game three and four. And so in this game five, Corey Perry's up to the top line. And after playing 12 minutes in the first three games apiece, he plays 30 minutes in this game. He scores the obvious uh, double overtime winner, but he has a couple assists on the three goals that they scored a tie late in the game. He's around the net causing havoc in typical Corey Perry fashion. It just felt like this sort of uh, turn back the clock. He stepped in a time machine and just gave us one last vintage Corey Perry performance. And it was like everything mm. that his career was, which is annoying around the net, nice yep. hands, scoring that Breathing. goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so for me, it was, yeah. he was kind of a heat check.
0: Yeah, no, that that, that applies well because you forget kind of the role you just assume when you watch this game while he's on playing with Getslap, That's where he's always been. You forget how much his role had been diminished that year um, under Randy Carlisle. So yeah, that's that for sure is a good one. And the fact that he's still going.
1: Yes. <laughs> like, well, he's,
0: he's still yeah. chugging along. Um, you know, or at least playing in the NHL. Some uh, because between him and Kessler, they were both just kind of like uh, just just. I respectfully just just so greasy and everything like you know bumping in the goalie and extra little elbows and falling back on the guy like just every kind of little not very subtle to the players maybe people at home don't pick it up but just like every top moment possible they could do something annoying they went out of their way to do it
1: yep yeah uh and running on fumes at this point so I respect the fact that he could turn back yeah. the clock um Doc and Eddie's commentary corner so I was excited to do this one uh, with you, obviously, because you can speak to it personally. But So I chose the NBC feed uh, specifically because Chris Cuthbert was doing the play-by-play, and if I can listen to him, I will. Um, awesome, yeah. He was so good. So in, in this series, it wasn't in this game, but I was watching the highlights, and in game three, McDavid scores this crazy goal, and he just goes like, McWow! And then on a the tying goal, he just goes, Rickard! raquel and he just like he just he, i don't know what it is about like his inflection point of his voice or whatever but he can just say someone's name and it's like he said 50 really well thought out words even though he didn't but i just feel like he did based on the way he said that one particular phrase or one particular name and that's why he's he's one of the best play-by-play guys in the league because he is capable of saying so much by just saying so yeah. little
0: you're right and I mean i've had the Great fortune of working with CC often in my career, and um, the bigger the moment, the better. Like you know, the more he distinguishes himself, and um, you know, I thought that you know when when the last four or five minutes of the game, when you know, you know, it was Boucher was doing the uh, color, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. Brian Boucher, and um, you know, you don't you don't do a lot, you don't say a lot of the color guy because you know so much is happening. You gotta you know the play by play guy gets carrying it and. And CC is so good at that. Um, some of my favorite broadcasts are ones where I'm just standing there listening to them for like four or five minutes at the of the games while I'm doing the broadcast with them because, <laughs> you know, I'm enthralled as well with hearing him describe what's happening right in front of me. Um, but, yeah, like, he's certainly on top of his game. Um, you know, he certainly did the idea of, like, mark that one and remember those goals. And we probably should – you know, they're very prophetic in this game, both guys, just predicting – that the game wasn't over, and we probably will see some different moments. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I like that. And then I think boosh um, was still a little bit earlier on in his career doing this, but like he was put in a really tough spot. And I empathize because I do it, um, because where you're sitting there trying to explain what happened at the end of the game on the, the, the tying goal and whether it's goal interference. And, um, you know, and some people might want to hear like, okay, what's your opinion? Like, what should the call be? What will the call be? And those don't always have to line up. Like, and and maybe this is my own personal bias. So I'll say like, I would call it a goal, but I don't think it's coming back. And that's okay. Like those both those things can be true. But um, you know, he's tr- you know, you're trying to explain what's going on, and it's a tough spot in such a big moment. The crowd's going crazy to try to accurately get through. You know all the stuff going on and the potential interference. And I don't know, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that could be like if you ever said that will count, that won't count, that should count, that should not count. And I, and I think generally speaking, I, I like the color guys that to kind of just like give me your opinion. I don't mm-hmm. care if you're wrong. Yeah. Like, I I am not gonna like oh you're an idiot you don't know you don't know hockey because you said that should count and didn't, or you hate the Oilers because you said it should count. Like, but like I'd like to hear your perspective. You're right there. You're watching the replays. What do you think is gonna happen? As opposed to, like, you know, you, everyone can see both sides of it. He was pushed in, but did he get out in time? He, you know, everyone can see what's happening, but, like, you're right there. Like, what do you think should happen? And I know that that can be a tough thing, especially in a massive moment like that.
1: Yeah. No, I don't think he did, I think. And yeah, I agree with you completely, whether it's right or wrong, or you agree or disagree. Like, the color commentator is yeah. there to provide their opinion and perspective, especially whether it's as a former player or, or in, in this case, like, from ice level, what you're seeing, what you're hearing. Um, mm mm-hmm. Cuthbert yeah after the after Raquel ties it he goes are you watching this and it's one of my favorite calls but uh, I, I wanted to ask you so as you you kind of alluded to it but as the color commentator in a game like this you're, you if you're so fortunate to call something like this where it's so frantic there's so much happening there's so many things to parse like what, what's it what's it just like especially if you're doing it from ice level just kind of because you want to capture that moment you want to sort of reflect the energy in the building but at the same time uh Like I was saying with Cuthbert, like less is more sometimes. You don't want to be ramping it up where you're just like yelling at the person sitting at home either. You kind of want to still sound like you're in control of the moment. Like I imagine it must be really difficult sort of finding a nice balance between those two sort of energy levels or emotional states.
0: Yeah, you know what? I think listen we're all passionate about the job right like so like you enjoy it like you will you, you ideally will reflect the 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 energy enthusiasm the emotion of the moment with your voice and hopefully that's not screaming but just you know it comes across because you're excited and you're into it and it, people can feel it um i think the greater challenge and i think and having said that, I, I think bush is one of the best in the world at being a color commentator um now and and, and you could see it back then um but understanding that like you know, I you 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 might watch one of my games, and I love to explain what's going on and why, and, and breaking it down and helping people understand. But at some time, moments when it's, it gets that followed by Fowler, it's you know, at that moment, it's probably not so much about let's get that extra replay in, but like we need crowd shots, we need emotion, we need the bench, we need to to paint the picture of the game at this time more so than they need to understand why Adam Larson dropped his stick. Like I think it's fascinating, and I love it. But, like, in the moment, like, you want the fans watching to be wrapped up in the emotion of the last five minutes of that game and finding that balance. Like, you still have to explain what happened here and why did they score, but, you know, maybe not to the same degree of detail as, you know, here's a crowd shot. Here's the bench shot. Here's the, you know, I'm standing beside the bench. They're, like they, they're, they're celebrating like they're 10 years old again. And, and in bringing in that kind of thing, so finding that balance, not so much energy and emotion, but just kind of technical um evaluation analysis of the game and kind of the emotional storytelling of the game and at that point it's probably more about the story than it is about the technical stuff
1: yeah that's where i mean it's yeah it's it's pretty crazy just because like i watching this game i was a bit overwhelmed just sitting on my couch rewatching watching a game that's three years old i can't even imagine at the moment mm-hmm. how uh, how hectic it must have been um most unanswerable questions so you already said yours was sort of um a, uh, what was yours again
0: my most unanswerable question, yeah. yeah. What the, if that if that goal happened again,
1: right? Yes. Game, what yeah. would be
0: the outcome? What would be the outcome? And and I don't know. And the, and I guess the other thing that pops up, um, you know, it's kind of a, um, uh, you know, if Andre Secker didn't blow his knee out, like I mean, you see the minutes that some of the Edmonton Oilers players played. Like Adam yeah. Larson played like forty-five minutes in this game, yeah. so. Secker was a, you know, a decent defender on that team. And I thought when David, I thought when Benning went down, I, was like, I thought he separated his shoulder. They were down two defensively the first five minutes. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be a nightmare. I don't remember this, but Benning came back and played a ton. But, um, you know, the other hand, like if Secker is there, you know, does his, does his experience, does his kind of, his poise perhaps result in a different end to that game?
1: well yeah sakura it was interesting because he he tears his acl at like he just two minutes into the game and mm-hmm. at one point he comes back and he's sitting on the bench and the broadcast is, is talking it's like oh it's good to see sakura out there like they're gonna need him and obviously he doesn't yeah. play more because he has a torn acl but he just wants to support the team but i mean even beyond just the outcome on this game like that was kind of the the end for sakura right like at this point he was their leading ice time guy for the first four games of the series And after Mm -hmm. this, he plays 36 games the following year, 24 the year after, and then he just gets bought out in the summer of 2019. And like he was a very important player making a lot of money for this team. So that was a big one. For me, it was which fan base is more bitter reliving this moment in time? Because on the one hand, I know it's still a really sore subject for Oilers fans uh, because they feel very aggrieved and justifiably so, as we talked about, because of how this game wound up turning out. But I think... Like for Ducks fans, it must be really tough just looking back at the team they had, considering what they have now and sort of how the decisions. I mean, obviously, like attrition and father time taking its toll on Perry and Kessler is one thing, and that's going to happen no matter what. But then just when we talked about the blue line, what's happened since with that and some of the decisions they made and trades they've made, like it must be really tough as a fan going back and reliving this. Part of it is glory days, but you know, this team had its questions and had its flaws and didn't ultimately win a cup. So it's not like you really remember this era fondly. So I think for Ducks fans, you're rewatching this and you're just sort of lamenting what could have been and just sort of the misery you're kind of stuck in now as a fan.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the other fans are still probably livid about that call in the <laughs> end of the game. Like I think they're like, they're legitimately sour thinking like, like we could add our shot, like we could have gone out there. Who knows? what? And we know this, like who knows what happens when you get through, you know, a round or two, like there's no, there's no reason why Evans could not have won a Stanley Cup that year. I mean, you just don't know. Um, I, you know, they weren't that good, and you know the injuries. But you just don't know. And so they are, for sure, still <laughs> irritated. I still see occasionally, you know, a picture of Kessler with his hand inside Talbot's pants, like inside his knee, and <laughs> and people are like, I don't understand how that. Like, there'll be a goalie review call during this past season. And it will be called goalie interference, and then some Edmonton fan like, "How is that goalie interference?" When this, and they'll do a screenshot of Kessler like diving onto Talbot. So, like three years later, they're still drawing on it with frustration, and, and I understand why. I think for Anaheim, it's really, you know, this year would be lumped into the, this and the previous, you know, three or four as a, you know, disappointing because they weren't able to do it when they had a really good team. And I don't know if this. You know this playoff run, or watching this game, would make them think more fondly of a you know this was a cool game where they won. But just I think all of them they I think they thought they were better in a lot of these games or not in games, but a lot of the series. They they mm-hmm. they should have won these game seven They should have beat Chicago at home. Um, they were good enough to, even though they might not have played well enough in that game. I, I just think that whole half decade, a um, run of excellence, will be just kind of remembered as a bit unfulfilling because they were never able to quite get all the way over the hump
1: certainly and you uh, it's a good lesson like one of my unanswerable questions is also like what lessons can future teams learn from where things went wrong for the ducks where things went wrong for the oilers and in sort of maximizing on the cheap years of dry cello and mcdavid but for that ducks team it's like it's what we talk about with the lightning now where you know if you have a playoff failure but you still believe in the quality of your team you can't let it fully dictate your decisions in terms of making drastic Mm -hmm. stuff happen in the summer and for them going hiring randy carlisle uh sort of doubling down on you know bx and kessler and like like they i think a lot of their that sort of postseason failure really did dictate a lot of their decisions at this point of time because they were so close they were on the precipice they wanted to maximize the last productive years of gets yeah. and perry and i don't blame them for that mm-hmm. at all but it's a tough spot to find yourself in because if you do fall short and chances are you probably will based on how odds work in the Stanley Cup playoffs, you're going to wind up kicking yourself for five, six, seven, potentially a decade to come. And so it's a really tough spot to be in if you're uh, someone like Bob Murray trying to build a team.
0: Yeah, trying to see the big picture, trying to appreciate the small picture, trying to manage. I mean, they like, yeah, and I don't know, I have to look at the timeline of the transactions, but like, you know, did the fact that they weren't able to go over the hump, would that make them more willing to, to say, okay, we don't need Six young guys like this that we can do without a Vatnan, we can do without a uh, Theodore because we're not sure who they are. And, you know, we want to make sure we have, you know, tried and true veterans like a Baxa or, you know, Clayton Stoner made an appearance. Like, you know, we needed more stout physical guys. Like, we just need something to get us over the hump, Um, you know, not maybe appreciating what they had. Because if you give me Gibson and those six defensemen, like, I don't need much else. I mean, really, like, you can build the rest of the team around it to be good year year in, year out still and be a Stanley Cup contender if I could have those six defenses that played in that game and John Gibson today mm. and so that like, I guess that will be the unanswerable question or whatever you want to call it, just what could have been I mean, for this team but also just for that back end if Gibson's to me one of the best goalies in the world, those six had they continued to develop on the curve they were on would be, you know, the best top, best six was core in the league and you give me that foundation and you're going to have a lot of success and and they're not there at all anymore they're they've kind of like you know recycled the entire thing and and they're nowhere near what they maybe otherwise could have been
1: any other unanswerable questions or is that it
0: um yeah I, mean, I think that that's uh how much, much is john, john gibson when,
1: hating his contract
0: yeah, well, I know. but you know what I don't feel bad for that just like I watch the bulls I don't feel bad for scotty Pippen. Right. like if you want the security Like everyone should be smart enough or you should have an agent that's smart enough. Yes. Like if you want security and you don't get, you know, you're probably going to leave some dollars on the table and you have to be willing to accept that and not complain about it. I love the quote in the last dance, Jerry Ryan's always like, you sign a contract. I don't want to hear from you Yeah. again until it's over. And I'm like, I, if I ran a team, I would kind of want to run it that way because I give you. You don't get it both ways. I'm not going to come cut your contract unless it's a football team. I'm not going to cut your contract if you play crappy. I'm not going to give you a raise if you play well. That's how this works. You want security, you take the discount and you don't get upset about it. So I'm hoping that John Gibson, who makes whatever 5.8, is saying yes. I could have made more. I deserve more. My market value is more, but this is what I wanted at the time, and I'm going to have to be happy with it until it's over.
1: Yeah. Well, I think he's making six four. Like he's making good money. I, six so just...
0: four. I, I always like my, my man, and we kind of get off on a tangent, but Damon Lanco, hmm. who I play with in Arizona, I think he went to arbitration three years in a row with three different teams. <laughs> Tampa, Phoenix, and Philly. Tampa, Philly, then Phoenix. Because he's like, I can't get the term. I'm not going to sign for less than I think long term. I'll just keep going and get what I deserve until I get finally that big contract. And he got it with Calgary, a five-year, $5 million a year deal. But like, that's a guy who understands it. I'm not I'm not going to be happy with anything less than my market value on a long-term deal, so I won't take it so sign shorter so Scotty Pippen I don't feel bad for you that way you're being a little bit whiny about your contract
1: Do you, uh, did you ever go to arbitration or do you have any any uh, like like, I, like good war stories of, of guys just I, being upset that their teams trashed them trying to get a better deal
0: well I filed for arbitration one time in Arizona I had led the team in scoring goals, assists, points all of it uh, but the year prior to that I had been injured and played on the fourth line and only had like 27 points in 50 games So a far cry from the 65 I had in my platform year. So I filed, and you exchange briefs, and I joke with um, whenever I see the the Coyotes guys, uh, because Lawrence Gilman, because he was the assistant GM, and I have the brief. I still have it in my house, where they called me, not my my year where I led the team in scoring, but the year prior, they said he was one of the worst forwards in the NHL. And I'm like, wait a (laughs) second, guys. Like, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I had a bad start. I played with Mike Sullivan. We didn't cross the red line. But, like, come on. I wasn't one of the worst in the league. I was plus whatever. That matters at the time. I had 20. anyways. Yeah. so I, I, I wasn't bothered by it, but I filed. And I'm like, well, I guess we're going to go. If they think I'm the worst forward in the NHL, then we're going to have to go to this. And, and in true Canadian fashion, as I went the morning of my arbitration, um, I was in the law firm waiting upstairs. My agent who went downstairs to get some coffee, ran into the Coyotes guys. Cliff Fletcher, Mike Barnett, Lawrence Gilman, in the Tim Hortons. And they started talking, does Mike want to do this? And my agent, Pat Morris, one of the best, like, yeah, he's totally good at doing this. (laughs) And because I was, I was excited. I had a good case. I was whatever. I was fine with it. I was 30. I wasn't going to get my feelings hurt. And they said, well, you know what? What about this number? And they literally worked my contract out on a Tim Hortons napkin.
1: Oh, man, that's very Canadian.
0: Yeah. So somewhere in my files, I have this brief, and I think I have the Tim Hortons napkin.
1: Not so, bad for one of the worst forwards in the league,
0: yeah, exactly two <laughs> one year two point three or whatever it was, yeah,
1: exactly uh, uh, I do
0: chuckle my my comparables for my arbitration case were like patrick Marlowe and and Marcos like pretty good players, yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm dragging myself up a little bit here,
1: yeah, not bad yeah it's it, it's tough. I remember uh, in uh the first year William Carlson had in Vegas when he scored the forty goals. And it was like he was mm-hmm. going to go to arbitration, and that's a tough one because if you're building a case for the team, you're saying, "Listen, he had a high shooting percentage. We don't yeah. think he's that good. He was lucky," and that's like a pretty tough thing to hear as a player, where someone's saying that you didn't fully earn every single goal you scored because sure. it was just luck was on your side. Like you're, you're not trying to hear that case.
0: No, no, but you can get over it when you get a four million dollar award.
1: Yeah, not bad. Um, <laughs> all right, Apex Mountain. I think like Cam Talbot is. The most apexy yeah. apex mountain guy right. that I've done on the show. Like he was on another level at this point in time.
0: Yeah, that, like the whole year, right? Like he played a ton of games and he was incredible in this game, and and it just seemed like you know he was the real deal. Like he was it. I mean, he was the backup coming out of New York. He had some good numbers in behind Henrik Longworth. They made the deal to get him to Edmonton because they needed a starter, and he, and he showed them to be correct. And you thought this guy is going to be a top, whatever eight goalie. That kind of that's your elite group. He's going to be that. Can be that for a for a long time and yeah he was I think he was content I don't like I don't I know it's hard to evaluate goaltenders and we can talk about the you know the merits of paying them a lot of money but I don't think anyone really thought that he wouldn't be pretty good for a while and um, I don't know if he's ever been better than he was that year that playoff run this game he was just amazing
1: well I guess a good unanswerable question is how different things would have turned out for him if he hadn't been used to such an a insane degree this season. I mean, 73 regular season games, another 13 in the playoffs. And he was he was so good. Like, he only had a 9 nine nineteen save percentage or whatever, but plus 31 goals saved above expected. It was second in the league behind just Sergei Bobrovsky that season. Saved another mm-hmm. seven in those 13 playoff games. And 86 games for a guy who played a, a bunch of years in college where you're not playing that many games, and yeah. then AHL, yeah. not many games, and then backing up Henrik Lundqvist, yeah. you're playing 20, 25, 30 games. All you sudden, wonder what the
0: last time yeah. he played 50 was. Was it eight years prior? Nine? You, like, I mean, I don't know. You never play 50 in college. I don't know if he ever played 50 like in the minors. So you make a very good point, because I don't think it hurt him this year, clearly. But I mean, yeah, unanswerable. Like, going forward, like he never was quite the same after that workload.
1: No, he wasn't. I mean, he's been a 906 save percentage goalie since minus 16 goals saved above expect. Like it just, it hasn't. Um, it's been a completely different case for him. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you're looking. I'm looking at his uh, his elite prospects page now. He played 55 games for the Connecticut Whale in the AHL. Okay, in one tw- year in 2012-13. Okay, so five years prior. That's the only time in his career he had played even 40 games before this. <laughs> Well, and he, he played, jumped to 85. He, he played 56 80. in his first year in Edmonton, fifteen sixteen, and then 73, yeah. and then 67, and then now he's a backup. And yeah, it's it's tough. Like, that's a physical and mental toll that there's a reason why teams are not playing goalies that much anymore. But um, in this mm-hmm. game, he stopped 60 of 64, and he basically, I think, stopped every single goal he could see the puck on. Yep. So, yeah, but he was he was good. I think any other sort of Apex Mountain guys? Because for a duck, so, Ducks, so a lot of the guys are kind of old. to me,
0: like, I thought... Like, Sammy Votnin was really good in this game, I thought. And yeah. like I liked him a lot. when I, and I did a lot of West Coast playoffs and stuff. And, and I, I'm like, this guy is an underrated defender. Like He's very good. He's a smaller guy, but he's a good passer. But he can defend well. Like He like, defends kind of the blue line. He handles, you know, he, he turns pucks over. And I, I thought watching this game, maybe because it, it hasn't been that way for him as of late, I thought this might have been his apex as well, or somewhere in around here.
1: See, here's mine. Hemp is Lindholm. He was still good after a couple of years for this, but this was the point in time where, like, they put him and Josh yeah. Manson together, and they were like the league's best defensive shutdown pair. And yeah. we we're talking about with like Montour, for example, where the effect be, the team you're on can have on you as a player. I think for Lindholm, his numbers have dipped, like his underlying numbers have even dipped the past couple of years. But he strikes me as one of those players where. Like, if he's on a good team with smart players who know where they're supposed to be, like, he's that much better because he sort of thrives off of that. Whereas now he's playing on this young team with a bunch of unproven guys where it's just kind of learning the ropes. And it just, I I don't think that's, like, the the most optimal uh, environment for his particular skill set because he's not this, like, Eric Carlson type of dominant guy where he's just going to take the puck and do it all himself. He's sort of, he's a supporting player. But, man, like, I look at him, Yeah, it hasn't really been talked about that much because he's a good player and I don't see why Anaheim would want to move off of him. But he has two years left on his deal. It's his age 27 and 28 seasons, only 5.2 million per like he's a name where if I was a Colorado or a Tampa Bay, I would be Mm -hmm. looking to make a godfather offer. Because I think if he was on a good team with players in their prime right now, like he would jump right back into being one of the best defensemen in the league
0: yeah you're right, you are right'cause you again, I don't you know maybe to watch as much anion games now because they're, they're not as good, but like you see this on the highlights and he's involved in a lot of them, and not all of them good, um, yeah because he was so good, he would just kill you with his feet like he would just his gap. he would gap up on you so tightly you'd like you couldn't breathe, you'd have no room to go anywhere and um yeah so maybe that applies to a lot of those guys um the the defensemen that were were at the the height of their powers, and the other one and then now I know he wasn't At even remotely close to the height of his powers physically, I mean that probably would have been the National Series and that with Kessler. But the height of his greasiness, because like I still think he had the mentality and he had the role and the and the coach that would let him do it to just like this was him at his. It's a young Connor McDavid. Like it's the perfect foil for him, grizzled veteran who's just wants to slow it down and make it physical and. Bend every rule in the book to try to get an advantage against, you know, the best player of the league, who's the young guy going through the first time. It was just a perfect guy for him to try to get after. And he, he he was pulling out every trick he had in the book. So in that sense, it was Apex Mountain, not for performance, but just like just in mentality for Ryan Kessler to try to get after to get after Connor.
1: Yep. I completely agree. And uh, who won the game? It's gotta be Getzlaff, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was awesome. And I, and I think, I don't even know me, these guys are so good. But I wonder on some level, players as good as he is. Not that he would need any extra motivation. But does he see, you know, everyone fawning all over McDavid, as they should. But he's like, you know what, head-to-head, maybe a little a little spark to say, like, I want to show these guys that I am not dead yet. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know, because, you know, he went up against the two up-and-coming star centers in Streisandl and McDavid, and he was, he was better. He's yeah. better in this game, he was better in this series. He was he was awesome. So yeah, he he probably he won the game for sure. Um he was just he's just a really good player and he has been for a really long time and you showed all the reasons why in this game and in the series. So yeah, to me gets left the big winner for sure.
1: Yeah. I agree. Um, all right, MJ. This was a blast. This was a, there was a yeah. lot a lot of meat on the bone in this game, and I think we uh, we chewed off most of it. So this is fun. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you're a good sport about taking the time to watch it and deep dive it. And I I think you're you're the only guest I've had so far for these rewatchables. You you like took control of this podcast at one point. You're like switching to new categories. You're bouncing around. So you were you were in full control. You were you were apex mountain <laughs> for this podcast.
0: Does that mean I'm only going to get worse from here? That's a bad thought. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I want to be you- the guy that aged the best.
1: You're gonna have another greasy uh, Kessler level to you at some point. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Listen, it was fun. I was, I I, you know, it was fun to actually sit down and watch a game with an analytical eye because I, you know, we haven't had to do it for a couple months. So uh, appreciate it, and we'll uh, hopefully we don't have to do it too many more times. But we have to do it again in the summer before we ramp up for something in the fall. Then. Uh, we can do that for sure
1: cool well i will definitely if this goes on for any longer i will uh i'll be calling you again to do so and hopefully we have a live game to talk about at some point in time so stay safe in the meantime thanks for taking the time and we'll chat soon man
0: all right man take care stay safe and uh yeah we'll talk soon
1: before we get out of here i just wanted to thank everyone for listening to today's show and to touch on a couple housekeeping things uh first off hopefully you're enjoying this quarantine rewatchable series we're doing uh, this was the seventh part we've done so far. So if you haven't checked out some of the others, I highly recommend going back into the archives and digging them up and having some fun with that. All the games we've done so far are available on YouTube. So you can watch them in their entirety and watch the full broadcast and go through it at your own, uh, at your own leisurely pace. Uh, this one actually that we just did with MJ, uh, isn't available on YouTube. Only the highlights are, but if you go on NHL TV, especially, Uh, on your laptop i'm not sure if the uh, apple tv app allows you to go back that far i think it stops at the 2018 season but if you go on your laptop and you dig it up on nhl tv you can watch the full nbc broadcast as we referred to it on this one Uh, the plan moving forward is to do a number of other games so i know i've teased it before but we will eventually get the king's blackhawks game 7 2014 i've also got Sharks, Golden Knights, Game 7 from last year planned. I've got the Blue Jackets and Lightning, Game 4 from last year planned. I want to get into Capitals, Golden Knights, uh, Game 5 from 2018. And the Predators, Jets, one of my favorite series of recent memory. Games 2 or 3 from 2018 as well. So we're going to be doing all those for those of you uh, diligent students out there that want to get ahead and do your homework. Um, I really hope you guys are enjoying this. And if you are, uh, as much as I am, please consider taking a minute to go leave us a rating and review on on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. Um, I know it's a really quick little thing and it may seem like nothing, but it goes a long way to helping our show um, and help spread the love during these trying times. So that's greatly appreciated. Um, And the other thing is, I just hope everyone out there stays safe. Uh, The reason why I'm doing these shows above all else is... I mean, first off, it's a nice little sort of distraction for myself and helps keep me busy since there isn't much else going on in the NHL and the hockey world. But for you, uh, hopefully it provides a little bit of normalcy, a little bit of a distraction, a little one or two hour reprieve in the day. and allows you to think about some other stuff other than what's going on in the real world around us. So hopefully it does that for you. I know some people don't really care about old games, but I think there's a really interesting lessons to be learned with all these. For example... Apologies, Toilers fans, for doing this one. I know it's still a bit raw and uh, it's still uh, a bit of a sore subject for you, but I think there's a lot of really interesting nuggets here that MJ and I parse through, and we'll hopefully continue to do that. So that's it for now. We're going to play the outro music and get out of here. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Quarantine Rewatchables. <music> on Twitter at Dim Filipovich, and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash